0: This morning we're thinking about the vine and the branches and bearing fruit. So my mother-in-law, in about the last five or eight years, I would say, one of the, one of the hobbies she has picked up is In the backyard, she has grape vines now, just a couple of rows, it's Not just, just a little hobby. Uh, she gets a, an incredible amount of grapes, and so just from a distance, being able to go back and see what she does, and the incredible amount of work that goes into tending the vine and pruning the vine, and so that it would bear fruit, it's neat to just see how much care and attention she gives to that, and then of course it's great to partake of the fruit. I don't know if she makes jam or jelly I couldn't tell you I'm not sure which I hope she's not listening online but it's good whatever it is so my question for you is would you like to bear fruit as a Christian throughout Scripture it speaks in the analogies of us as Christians bearing fruit are you willing to bear fruit do you desire to bear fruit what would it take for you to bear fruit what is the scriptural pictures and images of the christian bearing fruit and what does that look like well it's natural for us to want to have fruit filled lives right many of us want to have lives that are filled with fruit wherein we see god at work and we can say yes this is this is something good is taking place. This is a good life. This is a fruit-filled life. Here we see God at work. It, this concept is so popular today for our people, for Christians is what I mean. There are, you, could, you could search on Amazon Christian books and you would see countless books designed to help you learn the secrets of a fruit-filled life. What if I were to tell you that in just a few simple easy steps seven principles by friday your life would be filled with fruit there are books written that way that make it sound that simple and that easy and that there's just some little secrets that if you learn them your life can be transformed mystically magically wonderfully to the easy comfortable good glorious fruit filled life paradise 24 7 as a christian Is that the kind of life you're looking for? I mean, yes, we want fruit-filled lives, but how does it come and what does it look like And Jesus is in the middle of this discussion with his disciples in the closing hours of his life. And for a few weeks now, we've been looking at what would have taken place probably Thursday night, the night before his crucifixion. And he's just had supper together with them. And he's in the middle of teaching them. And he says, listen, he has an illustration for them. He has a picture. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And he's going to talk about what it looks like to bear fruit. He wants His disciples to have lives that are filled with fruit. And He's going to give them the picture and explain to them what that looks like. And so I want us to apply that to our lives as we think about what it means for us to have lives that are filled with fruit. So Kevin just read this, but I want to read it again one more time. Because we're not really going to walk through it verse by verse. Jesus paints a picture, so I'm going to say it again. You'll hear it for a second time. And then we're just going to kind of dissect and pick different parts of it and and work our way through the different characters that are present in the passage. As I read, you'll hear about a vine. We're going to talk about who the vine is. You'll hear about branches, two different kinds of branches. We'll talk about those. We'll hear about uh, what it means to abide and the fruit that comes through abiding. And then we're going to come back and talk about the vine dresser that you hear in verse one. So let's walk our way through these 11 verses as I read For our purposes, the morning will stop here. He continues with that fruit-bearing concept, even up through verse 16 or 17. But we're going to stop here and think about this picture of the vine and the branches. So who are some of the characters involved? We're going to start thinking our way through this. And where is Jesus at in this night with his disciples? So... When he, why, why does Jesus go to this analogy? Before we start looking at some of the characters, why, why does Jesus begin speaking about this? If you look at, cha- at verse 31 of chapter 14, here's what Jesus says, But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here so they're in the upper room they've finished dinner and there's one of two things that happen either one they actually get up and they leave and they begin their walk through the city because remember in just a few hours they're gonna end up in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prays and then eventually Judas comes with the band of soldiers and he's arrested there so either they get up and they do actually leave and on the walk they begin to have this discussion we, we don't know for sure where the next several chapters take place because the next time we get a geographical marker, as it were, would be chapter 18. In chapter 18, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. So until we get to there, we're not really sure what takes place. So you've all been in social settings where you, you, sit, you all get up from the table, it's time to leave, and so maybe they do, and then conversation starts going and they stay in the room for a while. That could be. Or it could be that as they're walking, perhaps they see a vine. Perhaps they pass through a vineyard. Perhaps there's an ornamental vine that they see, and and they begin to have this discussion as it triggers what Jesus wants to explain to them. And he uses this as a picture. He uses it as a metaphor. It's an illustration, often we as speakers like to use illustrations and that's what Jesus is using here he wants them to picture this look here's what my relationship with you is like and so he says I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser we're going to come back to who the father is as the vine dresser but let's focus in first on the vine why does Jesus say I am the true vine this is another one of those I am statements the last as John records his gospel remember we, we didn't cover all of them because of where we started in the book but we drew attention to the fact that Jesus has said I am the bread right I am uh, he speaks of being the good shepherd I am the way the truth and the life and here he says I am The true vine. Well, God's people were used to seeing Israel pictured as a vine. Throughout the Old Testament, God spoke of his special people and his relationship with them. He called them a vine. And he spoke of the way that they needed to bear fruit. But often, he spoke in judgment in the fact that they were not producing fruit as the vine. So I want you to see from the book of Isaiah. I've got a few verses here out of Isaiah. Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 5, and there's this song speaking uh, in similar language, and here is what the prophet says Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile, fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes but it yielded wild grapes you wouldn't want to eat the wild sour grapes who's the he that would be God who is the vineyard well let's come down to verse 5 and now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down I will make it a waste it shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up and I will command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And so God speaks of his special nation, his special people as a fruitless vine and one that he was going to have to judge. So if you look then in Psalms, go to Psalms 80, and I'll have these verses for you on the screen as well. Speaking of the way that God worked with his people, you brought a vine out of Egypt and drove out the nations and planted it and you cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. And then come down to verse 12. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boars from the forest ravages it, and all that moved in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine. Then come down to verse 17. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself then we shall not turn back from you give us life and we will call upon your name restore us O lord god of hosts let your face shine so that we may be saved and so god's people would have been used to hearing their nation their country termed as a vineyard and jesus comes and says look Israel, where you failed to produce fruit, Jesus is going to come and, as in true fulfillment, he will be the true vine. He will be the one who bears fruit. He will gather to himself a people who will uh, find life and forgiveness in his name, and they will be the branches, the fruit bearing branches of the vine. And so Jesus comes and says, I am the true vine. He says that in verse 1. Now we need to look and see who are the branches. There's two different branches. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit so the the vine dresser who's the father who we will come back to in a moment speaks of two different actions two different types of branches there's fruitless branches that he takes away or he cuts off or uh, they are destroyed and the fruit bearing vines are pruned or cut back so that they will bear more fruit they are disciplined in that sense and so there's these two different branches now why do I speak of them as being cut away or cut off or taken away? There's, there's a tension if we're honest. Let's slow down and look at this verse here and see what, what Jesus is saying and what he's not saying. Let's pay attention to it carefully. Every branch in me that does not bear f- fruit, he takes away or he cuts off is how I think that's the best translation to take that but there's a tension of how can there be a branch in Jesus Uh, are you saying that someone who is truly a disciple of Jesus someone who's in Jesus can be cut off and taken away well that's not what we're saying I'll get to that in just a minute so there are those who look at this word and the word that's used for takeaway it can mean to be lifted up or to be taken up and of all the times it's used in the Gospel of John there are some instances where it it's translated that way that it's taken up or it's lifted up Uh, at the majority of the times it does mean taken away and so there are those who look at this and say because it says this is a branch who's in me Jesus can't mean that they're taken off and destroyed this must be true believers and they're lifted up something that perhaps a, a vine dresser would do to bear more fruit so that the vine could bear fruit so there are those who take it that way and if you take it that way there are uh, solid expositors many faithful people that have chosen to interpret it that way but i'm not convinced that that's the best reason i do think that jesus is speaking of those who are not believers who are cut off and judged and let's walk through some of the reasons of why i think that it's, it's best to take it that way first of all remember this it's a metaphor it's an illustration. All metaphors break down at some point. You can't press every detail of an illustration in every possible point. Uh, that's what makes them illustrations. We use them to help clarify some points, but if you press them into every detail, they begin to break down. So I think you've got to stop and think, well, what is Jesus saying when he means in me? Can you press the metaphor all the way into that point? Look at verse 6. Here's one of the reasons that I think it would be judgment. Judgment why he would be cutting away. In verse 6, Jesus says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. So I would take that to be the judgment fire of hell, that these branches are burned and there's the, the, uh, the damnation or the judgment that takes place. So now this brings up the question, then let's come back to the question I raised. Are you saying that someone can be in Christ, that someone can truly be a branch of Christ, and that they would be able to lose their salvation. That somehow someone could be in Christ and there's something that could be done that they would be cut off and thrown away into the fire and burned. Well, no, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, We don't believe that. And John himself has labored in this gospel to give some of the strongest statements about eternal security that we have in Scripture. And so, this, I don't believe, is what John is trying to say. So, if you just want to flip over a few, verses, a few pages to John chapter 6, flip over to John chapter 6, and here's the way that John puts it this way. In John chapter 6, verse 37, here's what Jesus says. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There won't be someone who's in me, meaning truly saved, who's cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Flip over just a few more pages to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verse 27, where Jesus speaks of himself as the good shepherd and he speaks of his relationship with the sheep. John chapter 10, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and my Father are one. And so John has labored throughout this gospel to say if you are truly a believer, if you are truly in Christ, if you are truly abiding in Christ, you will never be cut off. You would never do anything that would damage or threaten that relationship in terms of your salvation for God. So we believe in the doctrine of eternal security so what does John mean what does Jesus mean when he says every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away well we've got to understand the way that as John is working with his gospel he is recording truths about what Jesus says and John is painting the picture based on Jesus ministry that there are believers who are not truly believers There are disciples who are not truly disciples. And he's been showing us that for several chapters. So let's flip back again a few more pages. Go back to John chapter 2, very near the beginning of the book. And look at the way John describes what it means to believe. John chapter 2, verse 23. John chapter 2, verse 23 says this. Speaking of Jesus' ministry, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So as Jesus was doing ministry, there were many who believed. Now, is that a saving belief? Look at verse 24. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So here's a kind of belief where Jesus realized this wasn't true belief. He wasn't yet willing to entrust them because he knew what was in their hearts. Go over a few more chapters to chapter 8. Let's look again at the term believe. John chapter 8, verse 30. So after Jesus proclaims that he is the light of the world, and uh, there are many who respond to his ministry in John chapter 8 verse 30 and as he was saying these things many believed in him John gives, gives us this commentary that there's a whole lot of people who believe again is this a saving belief are they truly in Jesus at that point are they abiding in him are they somehow a branch that could be cut off in terms of losing their salvation and as he was saying these things many believed in him verse 31 so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him if you abide in my words you are truly my disciples so here's a group of people that have believed in him and they need to hear Jesus say this conditional statement that if if you abide in my word you are truly my disciples They needed to abide, and only then would they truly be his disciples. Then look down at verse 37. So they ask a question about Abraham, and Jesus clarifies that question. Same group of people, this group of people, some of whom had believed. In verse 37, I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, Jesus says, yet you seek to kill me, because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. Here's a group of people that the words of Jesus didn't abide. That though there was initial belief, then they sought to kill Jesus. So let's not just look at the word belief, but also the word disciple and the way John uses that. Go to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 64. John chapter 6, verse 64 Jesus is speaking about having the words of eternal life. And he says to this group, But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who were, who he did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. And he said, "True, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my Father. Verse 66, very next verse. After this, many of his disciples... Turned back and no longer walked with him. These were disciples who were not truly disciples. And so John throughout his gospel has been helping people to see, wait a minute, just there are some who believe, but it's not true belief. They're not truly converted. There are some who are disciples, but they're not truly disciples. And so when we come to John chapter 15 and Jesus speaks of branches being in him that are taken away and cut off, don't press that metaphor all the way to saying, because he said in me, that must mean that they're true Christians, because John, has been showing us that there are people who believe and there are people who are disciples who aren't true and I think this is Jesus' point that that these are people who have a loose association with Jesus they might profess faith in Jesus but it's not saving faith now one of the primary examples of this we're in John chapter 15 and just two chapters earlier you have the character of Judas and as Kevin walked our church through the, 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 the last supper there in the foot washing scene, you have Judas who was taken away from the group. He was cut off from the group, so to speak. Jesus realized that Judas wasn't clean. And that's why Jesus says some of the things that he says in that passage. And that's why he wants them to understand that not everyone is clean as he's speaking there in John chapter 13. Go to John chapter 13 and verse 10. Pete, Peter, when, when he realizes that Jesus is going to wash his feet, he, he, he says, don't just wash my feet, but wash my whole body. And Jesus responds in John chapter 13, verse 10, Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. But not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he had said, not all of you are clean. So in John chapter 13, you have the vine with 12 branches in him. But only 11 of them are truly in him. Only 11 of them are truly clean. And you have one who's a betrayer who's not truly a believer. He's not truly a disciple. He wasn't a fruit-bearing Christian. And he's cleansed and removed from the group. And you come to John chapter 15. And now Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. And in verse 3, he says, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So now he has his group of true disciples, and he's teaching them, and he's training them. And so it's a, it's a warning, it's a realization that that not everyone who claims to follow Christ is truly a believer, is truly in Christ. There, there's there's uh, There are you would expect to see certain things in the life of a believer, fruit-bearing results that will back up that profession and evidence of faith. And this is what Jesus is going on to say. Because there are certain ones who are in Christ, loosed association, not true believers, who don't bear fruit. And the Father prunes them out of the way. They are cut away. They will be judged. And yet the true believers, verse 2, Those that do bear fruit, he prunes that they would bear more fruit. We're going to look more at that process in a minute. But this is the work of the Father. These branches, true believers, expect pruning in your life. If you want to bear fruit, expect, expect that God will accomplish those purposes through the pruning aspects of our lives as He disciplines, as He loves, as He desires to see fruit born out in our lives. And so this is what He accomplishes. You have both the, the fruitless branches and the branches that are bearing fruit. The fruitless branches are cut away, they are uh, uh, destroyed the fruit bearing branches are pruned they are cut back they are disciplined in a way that will allow them to bear more fruit so let's keep going then I want to read I want to read starting in verse 4 and I want to read this again because I want us to think we're moving from the branches now to this concept of bearing fruit and especially this concept of abiding in Christ what does it mean to abide in Christ that word means to remain Uh, What does it mean to that we would remain, the branches would remain in the vine, remain in Christ, and that he and his words would abide or remain in us? Listen to how many times you hear this command. Most of them are commands. And listen to how many times you hear it repeated and what you hear it associated with. What does this mean, that we would bear fruit, that we would abide? Abide in me, verse 4, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing." If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So before we look at some, these verses, give us some clues of how we bear fruit, how we abide. Before we look at some of those clues of the how, let's, let's just look at some of, the, some of the foundational characteristics that we've got to understand that this is, whether you catch it or not, one way or another, this truth affects your life because these things are true regardless of whether or not we catch it. Number one, you cannot bear fruit unless you abide in the vine. Look at verse 4. Uh, The the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Christian, if you want to see God accomplish good fruit in your life, it will not happen unless you abide in Christ. That's that's foundational. He he clarifies it from another perspective in verse 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If we truly believe that, that's one of those truths that intellectually we know, but if we truly operated our lives that way, I think the way we used our time, the amount of time we devote to prayer, the way that we try to accomplish certain things, would it would look different because we would know we have to abide in the vine and that apart from him we can do nothing. Certainly nothing of eternal value. And that's why it's so scary that from a human perspective, much can be accomplished apart from the vine but in terms of fruit that's going to last and bring glory to the Father, not one thing can be accomplished apart from the vine. And so we've got to catch and realize that. And then finally, look at verse 8. Here's another truth that by bearing fruit, this is how the Father is glorified and we prove or show that we are His disciples. This isn't how we earn being His disciples, but it's, it's how we prove that the claim is true, that we are truly in the vine. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So uh, this idea of abiding in Christ is, is what bears out the fruit, and we want to see this accomplished in our lives. So how? What does this abiding look like? What, what, what are some of the keys to helping us understand it? Well, if you come to verse 7, prayer is certainly integral. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. I'm not going to cover this now. Tonight at the prayer service, we'll come back and talk about this verse and the way it ought to affect our prayers. But certainly prayer is an important part of abiding in Christ. Secondly, not just prayer, but... Uh, um, obedience to God's commands so he starts this in verse 9 look at verse 9 as the father has loved me so I have loved you abide in my love so abiding in Christ's love is important to bearing fruit to abiding what does it mean to abide in Christ's love look at verse 10 he tells us this is what it means to abide in Christ's love if you keep my commandments you will abide in my love just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in His love. How do you abide in Christ's love? You Obedience. You keep His commandments. You do what He says. Jump down to verse 12. Look at verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So in fulfillment and obedience to the Lord's commands that we would love one another, these are two very, very important integral things of what it means to abiding in Christ and bearing fruit. Prayer on the one hand, obedience, on the other. And so I would reckon to think that if we were to inspect our lives, we would have some understanding of what our fruitfulness as Christians are based on the way we pray and based on our obedience to God's commands. Christian, how are you abiding? What does your prayer life look like, sound like? What does your obedience to God's commands look like? Because we want to be Christians who bear fruit. The Lord's commands are, the Lord's commands are seriously important yes salvation is free yes because god has forgiven us of sin there is no condemnation but that does not mean that we as believers are allowed to live any way we want Uh, abiding in christ and fulfilling his commands and being obedient to his commands are supremely important for a life that is fruitful And why? Why is this important in the life of a Christian? Is it because God is a cruel taskmaster who loves to sit in heaven and squash us like little bugs when we step outside his commands? No, look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Why does God want us to abide in him and keep his commands? He gets joy out of this. He wants his joy to be in us, that his joy would be fulfilled in and through us and that our joy would be full. This is the key to the good life. This is the key to to the the fulfilled life, the fruit-filled life. It's not a secret that will be accomplished by Friday, but it is a glorious truth that our joy can be full when we abide in Christ now there's one more character we need to look at because if if we forget this last character it would be easy to think okay Jesus is the vine I'm the branch who needs to abide in him okay abide I gotta abide I gotta work I gotta make sure I'm bearing fruit and it would be easy to put the focus all on ourselves but there's a character that I jumped over at the beginning and integral to this entire thing the fruit going on inside of us and the pruning going on inside of us there's this external Act going on, and God Himself is lovingly at work behind the scenes to bring about this fruit bearing. Look at John chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser, He's the farmer the husbandman as one of the translation puts it right he's the one who who, with the sovereign plan is lovingly tending the vine and he wants to bring about fruit Jesus his son is the vine he has his children as the branches who are in the vine and the father as the vine dresser is calling the shots he's orchestrating the scenes he's removing fruitless branches and guess what Christian brother and sister who's in Christ if if you are bearing fruit as a Christian, guess what? He's lovingly pruning you so that you would bear more fruit. As the sovereign God, he is working behind the scenes to bear fruit to bring joy into our lives so that our joy would be full. Now the question is how? How does God go about this pruning? It's one thing to think, oh yeah, pruning. Okay, pruning shears, I know what that's like. I've got those forsythia bushes on my front drive, right, that are about to turn yellow in a couple weeks and yours look glorious and mine look like they're disease-ridden plague. They get two yellow flowers on them because nobody's pruned them, right? So how is God going to do that? If I were to take shears out to my bushes it, it, it would need to look like a, a, a war zone went through there and they would have to get hacked back right and it would be there would be this destructive painful process how does God do it often he does it through affliction and trial that might not be the only way but it's probably one of the primary ways That God uses these hard and difficult times in our lives to prune us so that the Word, verse 3, the Word that He speaks to us that cleanses us so that God's Word can work on our hearts so that we would bear fruit. This is how God is at work to bring about joy in us. That he brings in these afflictions and trials not to punish us and judge us, but because he loves us and wants us to bear fruit. So if you were to look at the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7, and I believe I might have these verses for you on the screen. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7 says this. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? and then he goes on and it's so tied up to the idea of training and you look at verse 11 for the Uh, verse verse 10 look at verse 10 for they disciplined us speaking of the way earthly fathers disciplined their children for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them but he God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it God's plans and purposes for painful affliction and discipline and trials are for our good, to bring about fruit. Uh, Corinthians speaks about the purpose of trials. Peter speaks about the purpose of trials. And you've got to recognize and realize that there's a loving vine dresser who wants to bring about our joy, and he's cutting back. He's pruning, and it is painful but why he wants us to abide in him he wants us to remain in him he he, he's he's the vine dresser who's who's pointing at his son this is my son abide in him this is where you will find joy so andrew murray wrote on this he's reflecting on god's work to bring about trials and uh, uh, afflictions and he's reflecting on john chapter 15 and he says this our hearts are continually prone to wander from him God. Prosperity and enjoyment all too easily satisfy us. They dull our spiritual perception and unfit us for full communion with Himself. It is an unspeakable mercy that the Father comes with His chastisement, makes the world round us all dark and unattractive, leads us to feel more deeply our sinfulness, and for a time lose our joy in what was becoming so dangerous. He does it in the hope that when we have found our rest in Christ in time of trouble, we should learn to choose abiding in him as our only portion. And when the affliction is removed, have so grown more firmly into him that in prosperity he still still shall be our only joy. So much has he set his heart on this that though he has indeed no pleasure in afflicting us, he will not keep back even the most painful chastisement if he can be thereby guided if he can but thereby guide his beloved child to come home and abide in the beloved son christian pray for grace to see in every trouble small or great the father's finger pointing to jesus and saying abide in him This is what the Father does as He prunes. And He's trying to get us to abide in His Son so that we would bear more fruit and so that we would uh, 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 bring Him glory and so that our joy would be full. But know this, it will be painful. So I ask the question again, do you want to bear fruit? What would it take for you to bear fruit? Knowing and seeing this picture of how Jesus says, This is the work I'm going to do to prune you so that you would bear fruit. And in the larger testimony of Scripture, realizing God often uses affliction and trials to bring about fruit, do you desire to bear that fruit? Charles Spurgeon is a man who wrote uh, often about the deep afflictions uh, uh, and God's work to train in us that way. Spurgeon was a man who was very acquainted with suffering and grief and anguish and pain. And he says this, It is the word that prunes the Christian. It is the truth that purges him. The scripture made living and powerful by the Holy Spirit effectually cleanses the Christian. What then does affliction do, say you? Well, if I may say so, affliction is the handle of the knife. Affliction is the grindstone that sharpens up the word. Affliction is the dresser which removes our soft garments and lays bare the diseased flesh so that the surgeon's lance may get at it. Affliction makes us ready to feel the word, but the true pruner is the word in the hand of the great husbandman. We must be pruned, but it must be by the word through affliction in another place Spurgeon has this to say about uh, the, the grief that he felt in life I am afraid that all the grace that I have got of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny but the good that I have received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable affliction is the best bit of furniture in my house It is the best book in a minister's library. And Spurgeon knew well what it meant to have his life pruned, disciplined by God, afflicted, so that he would experience God's joy in that way. Do you want to bear fruit? Are you willing to go through that? Let's think about this for a minute, church. Where is John at in his gospel? Jesus is ours from his death by this time the next day he will be hanging on the tree unless it's after dark then he'll already be off but you see how what I'm saying is that he's very very close to his death Jesus is about to leave this world and for three years he's been pouring into these twelve men now eleven and he's preparing them Jesus is desirous that they would bear fruit what did fruit bearing look like in their lives now scripture only tells us about the fate of a couple of disciples So we can't say with certainty, but history and tradition has, from extra-biblical sources has told us that for most of these disciples, most of them died a martyr's death. Most of them died cruel deaths. Several of them crucified, one at least crucified upside down, tradition tells us these were men what did it mean for them to bear fruit it wasn't the easy good glorious uh, american dream life but it was fruit filled lives such that even you and i are here today on account of their testimony and jesus wanted to prepare them for that how so so think about this god wanted them to be ready to bear fruit in their lives and here's my concern for us Here's my concern for us in the context and culture that we live in. Bearing fruit in terms of the biblical way that God has described it for us to normally, ordinarily work itself out is such a painful process that I think you and I and myself, I I talked through this with my wife this week, so if I step on your toes, realize this, that as I talked through it with Anna, I realized that's me. That's in my heart. I've got to do work in these areas. You see, you and I as a people are so addicted to comfort. We've built our lives around ease and convenience that I'm afraid that often we will miss the loving work of the vine dresser as he painfully prunes us back to bear more fruit. How is it that God works to prune well, he's a sovereign God working behind the scenes, but he's often ordinarily going to work through secondary causes, through secondary agents, right? As God works out his plan, God doesn't whisper into your ear, I'm pruning you now, this is going to hurt, but be joyful, it's a good thing. That's not how God often works it's going to happen through these ordinary painful things. It might look like the loss of a job or financial hardship. It might look like the loss of health. It might look like illness. It might look like the death of a loved one. It might look like the loss of relationships or it might even look like someone sinning against you. As a church, we covered this in Philippians chapter 2 where Paul recognizes that, that there were people slandering him and yet he had confidence that God could use even that to push the gospel forward and God could accomplish his purposes even through that in the life of Paul and God was using it to accomplish good in his life it certainly could look like persecution by the time we get to the end of chapter 15 uh, jesus will say if they hated me they will hate you and that doesn't so when these wrong things happen it doesn't excuse the sin it doesn't mean that god will won't hold those people accountable but recognize and realize that that god might be at work in your life through something that's incredibly painful something you haven't been willing to acknowledge is from the loving hand of god and we are so we so desire comfort and ease of life that we are very quick to look at these secondary causes and to say that can't be god and and our our natural heart response is perhaps anger or bitterness or anxiety or despair or a spirit of unforgiveness or hard heartedness, or stubbornness, or criticalness. And, and all the while, we're in danger of missing perhaps the very thing that the vine dresser is wanting to work on us. Don't miss this loving hand of God, and perhaps God is trying to expose these areas of our heart because He wants us to bear fruit. What would that look like in the life of a believer, someone who could go through enormous suffering and hardship and yet say, I can trust in the goodness of God? I'll come back to this book, A Camaraderie of Confidence. John Piper writes about the life of Charles Spurgeon and George Mueller and Hudson Taylor. George Mueller was a man who lived most of his life in Bristol, England, was the pastor of a church for over 60 years there in the same congregation. He's most well known for his work in orphanages. He and uh, his wife, wives cared for a uh, little over 10,000 orphans throughout their ministry and a man of faith who prayed to see God provide financial support for all of this. Well, he lost his first wife after, I believe it was 39 years uh, and they, they were not immune to hardship and suffering in their lives. Of the four children that God gave to them, two were born stillborn. The third was died at one year old. They only had one child who lived into adulthood. And so they would have known what hardship and suffering was like. And then they get to the end of their life. And somehow he remains tenderhearted before God as he watches his wife die from illness and to think how, how could God how how what is it that so grips someone's heart that they still have faith in God and respond to his loving care in the right way and it is not as if somehow they had a negative relationship uh, their, their their relationship was one that was loving and warm and tender I'm gonna skip a quote where he speaks about how much he enjoyed his wife so it's not just as if uh, he was so committed to his ministry that he was glad to get his wife out of the way they they had a warm relationship But once he learned of his wife's sickness, uh, what were some of the thinking that got him through it? He said this, "The The last portion of scripture which I read to my precious wife was this, The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. I said to myself, with regard to the latter part, no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. I am in myself a poor, worthless sinner, but I have been saved by the blood of Christ, and I do not live in sin. I walk uprightly before God. Therefore, if it is really good for me, my darling wife will be raised up again, sick as she is. God will restore her again. But if she is not restored again, then it would not be a good thing for me. And so my heart was at rest. And I was satisfied with God. And all this springs, as I have often said before, from taking God at his word and believing what he says. God's word abiding in him. To realize that there's a loving vine dresser behind the scenes and he will not allow that into the life of his children except that which is desirous to bring you joy and cause you to bear more fruit. Do you believe that, Christian, here this morning? Oh, may it be true of us. May it be true of us that we abide in him so that we may bear much fruit and so prove to be his disciples. Let's bear fruit, brothers and sisters at Shawnee. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would be at work in our lives. We desire to bear fruit. We pray, Father, that you would help us to see your good hand at work in our lives. To realize that you are desirous for your glory and our joy. May we be May we be people who are not characterized by angerness and bitterness and critical stubborn-heartedness and a spirit of unforgiveness. May we be people who are characterized by peace, by love, by our contributions to the good of the body here. May we be people who respond in suffering and trial to the pruning of the Father and say, Yes, we want you to bear fruit in our lives. May you be at work for your good and for our good and for your glory. We ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen.